All right, welcome back. Uh, this week, we're going to spend some time talking about uh, different types of dementias, a topic I think that comes up a lot in neurological practice and something that uh, can be very complex and can be hard to get your head around. And I have with me Dr. Darren Volpe, who's uh, one of our leading clinician educators here at Yale uh, and somebody who teaches a lot of the anatomy and dementia. And so, uh, Darren, welcome and thanks for doing the podcast with me. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. So, uh, Darren, I'd love with you to start with your general approach to the overview of primary dementia syndromes and uh, maybe uh, the approach to how uh, residents and other learners can uh, get their heads around uh, the different types of dementias, the ways that they're different, and some of the, uh, the areas that are frequently tested on both in-service and, and licensing exams? A great place to start is to look at the four major subtypes of dementia, which are uh, Lewy body dementia, vascular, Alzheimer's, and uh, frontotemporal lobar degenerative disorders. Those are the four main subtypes. And you want to uh, have a, a, a sense of what differentiates each one from the other from uh, a clinical perspective, and then of course from the from the difference of the pathologies of these four major subtypes. Uh, so I think it's a, a good place to start is to know what are the more defining features of each one that differentiates each 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 one from the other. Uh, I could give some uh, some examples of the clinical. Uh, manifestations of each that can help to differentiate them. Uh, if we look at, for example, Lewy body dementia, we will see uh, an individual who has had some cognitive impairment that has developed over the course of uh, usually a year to two years that's becoming more noticeable to the patient and the family. Uh, but the memory aspect of these may not be, uh, may not allow you to differentiate one from another. So we look at other other clinical features. So for Lewy body dementia, we would then look for, in addition to the memory difficulty, uh, we would look for motor signs of Parkinsonism. Uh, we would take a, a careful history in which we would try to find out, do they have REM sleep behavior disorder type symptoms in which they are uh, punching or kicking while dreaming? Uh, and we often find that in uh, Parkinsonian syndromes, uh, that could occur even decades before the diagnosis is made. Uh, in Lewy body dementia, they have much more prominent visual hallucinations, uh, most commonly visual, and uh, they can have very wide fluctuations in their cognitive status, and they're very sensitive to neuroleptic medications. So there are, as you can see there, there are just several defining features of Lewy body, which are uh, usually not seen in the other subtypes of dementia. Um, if we move on to vascular dementia, uh, these are individuals who um, have cerebrovascular disease and risk factors, and we would often see that they've had um, a stroke or more than one stroke, and uh, we can see that they can have cognitive deficits that uh, progress after each stroke that they have, or we may see an individual who has microvascular disease, and then we see the uh, typical white matter changes, uh, which will accumulate slowly over time. And so what we would, all, we would frequently see in vascular dementia would be a cognitive impairment in which they have a cognitive slowing because of those white matter changes. And in addition, they often will have gait and balance impairments, uh, 
that would be uh, more prominent than you would see in, for example, Alzheimer's dementia. So it's that those white matter pathways that uh, carry a lot of information from the frontal lobes dealing with cognitive function, which also will affect motor aspects of gait. So for vascular dementia, we're often seeing uh, patients who have memory uh, cognitive slowing along with gait impairments. Uh, and they would also have prominent executive dysfunction because of the frontal lobe involvement. If we move on then to Alzheimer's dementia, we know that that has the prominently uh, uh, memory dysfunction for, uh, at the earlier stages of the, of the diagnosis. Uh, but you would not see, you would not expect to see those prominent gait problems. You would not be expecting to see Parkinsonism that you would see in Lewy body dementia, for example. And then for frontotemporal lobar degenerative diseases, they do not present initially with a memory impairment. Their initial presentation for the behavioral variant would be a personality change. Uh, and they may develop memory problems later, but that is not the prominent symptom early on in the course of the disease. And that's a, a very important defining feature of, of uh, frontotemporal lobar degenerative conditions. Uh, and then um, other, other individuals with that same pathology, if it affects more of the language areas of the brain, they would develop primary progressive aphasias. And uh, similarly, in those individuals, they would not initially present with a memory problem, but rather initially with a language problem. Yeah, that's a, that's a great summary, Darren. And, and, uh, and just to summarize, so we're really talking about four major categories of primary dementia syndromes. Uh, as you said, dementia with Lewy bodies, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's disease, the broad category of frontotemporal lobar degeneration, which as you said, has two main variants, the, the behavioral variant and the primary progressive aphasia, a, a language variant. Uh, and, and to go through those again, just briefly, uh, as you said, I think we all know that dementia with Lewy bodies has the Parkinsonism, uh, can be associated like other synucleinopathies with REM uh, behavior disorder, uh, hallucinations, uh, and, and the fluctuations, um, as I understand, those can be quite severe. And in fact, there are, are um, situations in with, which people with dementia with Lewy bodies will be completely unresponsive, uh, almost like an epileptic event, and these can last hours at a time. Um, so something to be aware of. And as you said, the neuroleptic sensitivity. Um, can you speak briefly to the overlap between vascular and Alzheimer's dementia? These are pathological and clinical scenarios, I guess, that rarely exist in pure isolation. Uh, and maybe you'll talk about that a little bit later, but I can imagine where clinically that's a hard uh, uh, pair of syndromes to differentiate for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I think if we just think of it uh... In, in very broad terms, in the aging population, Alzheimer's, both Alzheimer and vascular dementia can have, uh, uh, you know, just, just with an aging population, you can see an increased uh, high incidence of either one of those. And so as individuals are entering into their 70s or 80s age group, they very may well have uh, developed cerebrovascular disease over time. And uh, this would affect their white matter and microvasculature so they may be developing some cognitive impairment due to that, uh, but uh, uh, simply because of their uh, their age, uh, they would also be having an increased risk of developing Alzheimer dementia. So both of them are common. And uh, so often when we would do neuropsychological testing, we might see 
um, mixed cognitive deficits. So, uh, for example, an individual with Alzheimer's has specific types of memory problems. Uh, one way to define that is they have what we call rapid forgetting or difficulty with recognition. They're presented with some words to remember, and uh, when they're presented later with those words, they cannot recall them. And then if they're given a cue, like a category cue or a multiple choice cue, uh, to try to help to trigger the, uh, the memory of what the word was, that, of, that often does not help them. Whereas in vascular dementia, it's a more of what we call a subcortical type of memory impairment, where when they get a cue, it will help them to remember. And I'm saying all that because when we do neuropsych testing on these individuals, we try to sort out well, what, is the, what is the cause of their memory impairment. Often we see a mix of both of those. Uh, and so it's very hard to differentiate between the two. And we will often then come up with a diagnosis of a mixed Alzheimer and vascular dementia. Can you quickly go through the characteristic, you've alluded to this a little bit, but go through the characteristic pathological features of each uh, of these four and maybe emphasize some of the things that come up on certification exams when it, when it comes to pathological changes with each of these four types of primary dementia. Uh, one of the things that can be uh, confusing and uh, one of the things that may come up in questions that could be, um, uh, that, that could have, um, you know, it could be difficult to come up with a specific answer is the tau pathology. So uh, the tau pathology in frontotemporal lobar degenerative conditions is, is, a, is of a different type where uh, the tau collection is in the cell body of the neuron, whereas the tau pathology in Alzheimer's dementia is in the form of neurofibrillary tangles, which has more of an effect on the cytocellular structure of the neuron. Uh, so they both are considered tauopathies, uh, but it, it's of a different uh, type in Alzheimer's and in frontotemporal uh, degenerative conditions. Uh, so, uh, so it's important then to know that uh, Alzheimer's dementia, the primary pathologies are, as we said, the tauopathy, which is intracellular, and the amyloid pathology in Alzheimer's is extracellular. Uh, so it's an extracellular accumulation of uh, abnormal beta amyloid. And in uh, vascular dementia, when we're talking about microvascular disease that is so common uh, in aging population, uh, we would think of perivascular pathology surrounding the very small blood vessels in the white matter of the brain where uh, there can be lipohyalinosis and uh, impairment of the, uh, the blood supply to surrounding brain regions. Uh, and in uh, Lewy body dementia, we would see, as we know, that's an alpha syn synucleinopathy. And uh, we would simply see abnormal uh, Lewy bodies. And those would collect also in cortical regions in addition to the brainstem regions, uh, the brainstem regions being the areas of the substantia nigra, which would cause the motor Parkinsonism. But we also see those Lewy bodies in uh, other parts of the cortex, which could contribute to the uh, the cognitive aspects of Lewy body dementia. So, so just to summarize, as you've said, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies has Lewy bodies. These are these spherical eosinophilic cytoplasmic inclusions, which are filled with alpha synuclein and I guess other things, ubiquitin and other things. In vascular dementia, you're going to see microinfarcts, dysfunction of the white matter or abnormalities of the white matter. And as you said, perivascular pathology. Uh, the two things we have to know about Alzheimer's disease are the amyloid plaques, those are extracellular 
accumulations of amyloid, uh, which can be seen either on the Bilshavsky silver stain or with uh, selective amyloid uh, stains, I guess, uh, pathologically. And then the tau-containing neurofibrillary tangles, uh, which are intracytoplasmic, as you said. Uh, and then in uh, frontotemporal dementia, we have tau and uh, inclusions. Also, these uh, I guess they also contain TDP forty-three. Yeah. Uh, and are those what are uh, what used to be called PIC bodies? Yeah. Yes. Uh, that that would have been explaining the tau uh, pathology. I think that was a nice overview of those four, and I think they'll be uh, helpful to remember. And we, in our movement disorders uh, version of this podcast in the pa uh, past, uh, talked about tauopathies and uh, alpha-synucleinopathies as two major categories of neurodegenerative disorders, um, which either have cognitive or movement disorder associations, or both in many cases. But can you summarize the tauopathies and alpha-synucleinopathies for us? Um, the tauopathies, uh, that would be including uh, frontotemporal lobar degenerative conditions, as we mentioned, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but uh, other tauopathies that you need to know about would be uh, progressive supranuclear palsy and cortical basal syndrome. And uh, the, I would say that the uh, progressive supranuclear palsy is one which often uh, people become uh, confused about because in PSP, we know that you see significant Parkinsonism. And so many people will try to uh, group that with the alpha-synucleinopathies since, uh, since, the, since those are Parkinson Parkinsonism uh, type syndromes. Uh, but PSP is the exception where it is, it is a tauopathy. And then alpha-synucleinopathies would include Parkinson disease, multi-system atrophy, and, uh, and Lewy body dementia. I always thought one clinical thing that unifies the alpha-synucleinopathies is REM sleep behavior disorder or REM behavior disorder, mm -hmm. um, which can be seen in, in all of the synucleinopathies, Parkinson's, dementia with Lewy bodies, and, and multiple systems atrophy. Yes, and as I mentioned before, uh, it's also important to remember uh, about REM sleep behavior disorder that it can be seen in individuals even decades before they're uh, diagnosed. That, um, it's it's uh, frequently uh, an early symptom. I don't know that we have to spend a lot of time on this, but can you uh, talk through our understanding of the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's dementia, uh, exactly the current thoughts about how this happens and how it results in neurodegeneration? Uh, sure. So, uh, so we know that uh, the, regarding the pathology of the beta amyloid plaques, in normal neurons, there's something called an amyloid precursor protein molecule, which extends from the interior of a neuron into the, out into the extracellular space. And uh, and there are enzymes, uh, gamma secretase being one, uh, which will cleave that APP molecule within the cell membrane, and beta secretase will cleave that uh, APP molecule in the extracellular space. And uh, what you're left with is uh, beta amyloid components, which then can uh, aggregate into a plaque. Now, normally, we would have normal clearing mechanisms of these plaques, uh, and that is one of the major mechanisms of what we think would be one of the pathologies of Alzheimer's is that these are not being cleared appropriately. And, and how about, how does tau fit into all of this? So we, this, you've explained sort of how amyloid plaques may accumulate uh, and, uh, by not being cleared uh, after the 
amyloid pre precursor protein is is cleaved by the secretases. But but what about the tau part and how do the tangles form? Um, so tau normally will bind and stabilize the microtubules, uh, the microtubules, which help to maintain the uh, the structure of the neuron and the axon. Uh, so normally the tau would bind them, but when you have a hyperphosphorylation of those tau molecules, uh, you would have uh, loss of the tau binding of the microtubule, and uh, this would then form neurofibrillary tangles. And this is what we could see in the pathology, which is affecting the whole structure of the neuron. We've talked a lot about plaques and tangles. Uh, sometimes on certification exams and in other settings, there are questions about the other pathological features that can be seen in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those uh, and what residents should be looking for? Uh, sure. Uh, and well, as a result of some of the pathology that is, that is uh, happening within the cells, you will see sometimes neuronal granulovacuolar degeneration in, in which uh, you're simply seeing, you know, breakdown products of the cells, you know, vac vacuolization of the neurons. Uh, and and uh, you could see granules uh, within the cell body, which are occurring simply because of the uh, the toxicity of the of the changes that are occurring from the tauopathy. Uh, and so, so microscopically, you will see these changes. Uh, you will also often see herino bodies, in which uh, you see these almond-shaped uh, abnormal protein deposits, which are composed of actin. Uh, so this might sometimes show up on the boards, either on the, uh, you know, they may show a slide of the pathology, and uh, you'd see uh, mainly eosinophilic uh, uh, almond-shaped deposits within the cytoplasm. And uh, lastly, you can see uh, sometimes amyloid buildup in the cerebral blood vessel walls, causing a thickening of, of, uh, uh, of the vasculature in the brain. And, um, you know, there's... We don't fully understand the connection uh, that, that may be between Alzheimer's that affects neurons uh, uh, and, and the amyloid abnormalities we discussed before and the amyloid that accumulates within the blood vessel walls. But we, you know, there, there does seem to be a correlation uh, where uh, individuals with Alzheimer's may have uh, a higher uh, risk of having cerebral amyloid angiopathy. I always remember uh, uh, when I was preparing for my certification exams, uh, I think it was just such a colorful phrase, but uh, amyloid angiopathy you can see as an accumulation of eosinophilic material in your standard stain. Uh, you can also uh, see it, of course, with uh, amyloid uh, immunohistochemical stain. And then classically, uh, you can see it with a Congo red stain and then uh, you have this birefringence when you look at it through a polarized filter. Uh, and sometimes this picture shows up on in-service and, and uh, certification exams. And it's, it's this green refringence, which has been described as apple green birefringence. And I think it just has to do with how light uh, works. I, I haven't gotten into the physics of it, but I always remember when you see a thick vessel wall that's green uh, and everything else is green, that that's probably amyloid angiopathy. Imaging is a question that comes up a lot, I think, when it comes to Alzheimer's dementia. And of course, we have traditional imaging techniques and some emerging imaging techniques. Uh, and images frequently show up on exams, as well as the strengths and limitations of those. 
Uh, can you talk us through imaging in Alzheimer's disease? Uh, most commonly, we will be looking for hippocampal atrophy, and uh, we we can sometimes look at this through special, uh, uh, you know, if we if we do a volumetric imaging, including the hippocampal structures, uh, we we can see that there is a uh, an atrophy that occurs, and you will often then see that the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle will uh, appear more prominent because of the hippocampus, which is uh, which is atrophying. We often will see uh, biparietal and posterior cingulate atrophy as well. Uh, we, we may see that in individuals who have uh, posterior cortical atrophy. Uh, this is where somebody has very severe visuospatial dysfunction, and um, it usually ends up being Alzheimer's pathology that causes it. But you'll see uh, an, uh, an early and more prominent atrophic change in the parietal lobes. Uh, can you talk us through some of the emerging uh, functional imaging techniques? Um, so something we've had for um, you know for some time now is just uh, FDG PET imaging, uh, in which we would be looking at glucose metabolism in the brain. The areas in which we would see a, a hypometabolism of glucose would be in the medial temporal regions, which would include the hippocampus, and we would also see hypometabolism in the parietal lobes, posterior cingulates. We often also will see hypometabolism in the precuneus, which is the, uh, the medial portion of the parietal lobe, if you look at a mid-sagittal section. Another form of uh, imaging, uh, PET imaging, uh, tagging for beta amyloids, abnormal beta amyloid. Uh, we frequently will do this with floor beta peer. Here we're looking for at least three lobes of the brain. Which, uh, in which we see on imaging, on the PET imaging, we will see that there is a loss of gray-white differentiation. So if three of the four lobes of the brain have a loss of the gray-white differentiation, this would be a positive scan for beta amyloid burden in the brain. And uh, beta amyloid imaging is, um, is quite uh, sensitive, specific, in the upper 80s to 90% sensitive and specific for, uh, for an Alzheimer's diagnosis. And since we're talking through uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, what about other uh, clinical tests? So I know uh, there are emerging uh, tests for, uh, for example, the APOE4 uh, variants and then uh, lumbar puncture to look at uh, amyloid um, beta-42 and tau, for example. Can you talk us through, I guess, both the clinical and then emerging roles for each of those types of tests? Uh, so in terms of uh, CSF evaluation, uh, we would test for uh, uh, beta amyloid, tau, and phosphorylated tau in the CSF. And we would expect in an individual that, uh, that has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's that they would have a, uh, a, a low level of beta amyloid. And uh, this is thought to be because the normal clearance mechanisms of the beta amyloid are, are uh, not functional. And so the CSF should have more beta amyloid because of the clearance, but in Alzheimer's, um, they don't have the proper clearance. And so you see less of the beta amyloid. So you would have a low beta amyloid, high tau, and high uh, phospho tau. And uh, this is, uh, has a, about the same sensitivity specificity as the uh, uh, beta amyloid PET imaging that we discussed before. So in what clinical situations might you do such a lumbar puncture? If we're having a difficulty in terms of uh, making a diagnosis, so for example, if we have an individual who's uh, younger, somebody who's in their 
you know, 40s, 50s, early 60s. Uh, and uh, there's a, a diagnostic question. The CSF analysis will help us to be more specific in, in the diagnosis. So we go through all of the diagnostic criteria when we do our history and uh, our physical examination and neuropsychological testing. We try to see if uh, somebody is fitting a pattern that we expect as we were discussing earlier. And sometimes it's not as clear cut as we would want it to be. And so in order to improve our diagnostic accuracy in those individuals, we, we would then decide and discuss with the patients uh, whether they would want to proceed with something that uh, can be more sensitive and specific to make the diagnosis. And, uh, and lastly, uh, can you tell us about uh, the role of uh, testing for the APOE4 uh, variant. Uh, EPOE4 is something that would, which it's not a, um, you know, mut it's a mutation that's going to uh, uh, lead to a diagnosis like presenilin 1 or presenilin 2 or APP mutations. They, we know that they will cause the disease, whereas the APOE4 are, are more about uh, uh, you know, risk factors to develop uh, older onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we don't frequently test for APOE4. It, it's, it's not uh, specific to speak to a, a specific diagnosis of the disease. It just would speak to an increased risk of developing it. Can you talk us through some of the variants or ways in which uh, we can see uh, vascular dementia uh, develop, uh, now moving on to some of the clinical and diagnostic aspects of vascular dementia? Sure. So um, I think uh, people often learn about vascular dementia as something that occurs in a stepwise fashion. So for example, uh, an individual may have a stroke and after that stroke, they, they begin to have a, a new cognitive impairment that they did not have before. And then they, uh, uh, after we notice that initial decline in cognitive function, uh, there's often a, a, plat a leveling off where they're stable they don't decline further in their memory or other cognitive functions. Then they may have another stroke because they, they are, uh, an individual has cerebrovascular risk factors and they may have another stroke and then their cognitive function takes another hit, so to speak. That is when we would see a stepwise change. That may be considered what we call multi-infarct dementia. Each stroke, they may have a further impairment in cognitive function. In my experience, more commonly, the more common type of vascular dementia that we would see is the one that occurs more insidiously over time where uh, somebody has cerebrovascular disease, affects the microvasculature, and therefore you see white matter changes that occur slowly over time. They may not, they may not present with one large stroke, but over time as they have an accumulation of the white matter disease, they have a slow impairment of their cognitive function. And we see cognitive slowing. We see those gait impairments that I talked about before. And then uh, we can also see sometimes a single strategic infarct, meaning that the infarct occurred in, a, in an area of the brain, uh, perhaps near the limbic system, uh, that, perhaps near the hippocampus, that specifically affects uh, memory functions. So you can sometimes have just a single strategic infarct that causes the individual to have uh, cognitive impairment. I've also seen that with... Um, uh, individuals who have an anterior uh, nuclear stroke of the thalamus. The anterior nucleus of the thalamus, of course, important in, in PAPE's circuit uh, and therefore important in memory and coding. And uh, we've talked about that on, uh, on prior podcasts as a really important area in the memory circuits. And uh, so hardly surprising that an infarct in that region 
could cause a amnestic or a dementia type of syndrome. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you tell me, uh, I've, I've always had a hard time getting my head around it, but what's Binswanger's disease? That's really just uh, what I was describing uh, of when you have a microvascular disease that accumulates over time. And, you know, when we see on the, on the MRI that there is uh, moderate to severe white matter disease, uh, that's, that's really what's, uh, what's occurring there is you have um, lipohyalinosis of, of some of the very small uh, vessels and an accumulation of white matter disease over time. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a, I guess the point is it's a syndromic diagnosis, nothing particularly special. And, uh, and just as you said, a combination of amount and location of uh, the micro infarcts is, is what suffices or culminates to form the dementia. Uh, and then uh, I guess you have categorized uh, at other times, and we won't uh, talk about it on this podcast, but there are uh, genetic arteriopathies. Uh, we've talked about catacil or cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy in our other uh, podcasts, but that, I guess, is a subset or subvariant of vascular dementia. Right. Uh, thinking about the uh, white matter disease that accumulates that we talked about from normal microvascular changes, you know, catacil just being a, a genetic variant that causes that to really accumulate quickly. So we've already talked quite a bit about uh, Lewy bodies and, uh, and dementia with Lewy bodies and, and some of the pathological features and clinical features of dementia with Lewy body. I think you have talked before with us about the treatment of dementia with Lewy bodies and, and maybe how that might vary or be different from the treatment for Alzheimer's dementia or vascular dementia. Can you talk about your treatment approach to each of those three disorders? So the treatment approach for Lewy body dementia, uh, first of all, it's interesting that uh, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, which we use for Alzheimer's disease, uh, these are often quite helpful, perhaps even more uh, effective in Lewy body dementia. Uh, Sometimes we may see that uh, the hallucinations may be decreased if it, with the use of these medications or some of the confusion that they have. So cholinesterase inhibitors are, are frequently used in Lewy body dementia. Sometimes we'll try to treat the Parkinson uh, signs, that Parkinsonian signs that they have with uh, carbidopa, levodopa, although it's usually not as effective in Lewy body dementia as it is in Parkinson's disease. And you have to be careful with that because uh, since they are often having hallucinations, uh, the levodopa may uh, cause a worsening of the hallucination. So we do that if, uh, if they're having uh, motor, motor Parkinsonism that is affecting their balance and their gaits. And uh, I have sometimes seen some individuals improve in their Parkinsonism you know, without a significant worsening of, of any kind of psychosis. Uh, but you have to obviously be very careful in the use of that. Anxiety and depression are very frequently seen in Lewy body dementia. And so uh, SSRIs are the drug of choice for that. In terms of other treatments, this is not really a a treatment. This is something to avoid, which is uh, neuroleptics. They're very, very sensitive to neuroleptics. They may have a very severe dystonic reaction with um, especially typical neuroleptics. But even atypicals, uh, they they can have this uh, dystonic reaction. I find that quetiapine is usually safe to use, especially if we're trying to treat hallucinations. Uh, but other antipsychotics should be avoided. Great. And, and in Alzheimer's uh, disease, we also use, I guess, cholinesterase inhibitors uh, for the same reason, uh, and they can be effective 
uh, and then any other treatments we should know about for Alzheimer's disease? Um, so for Alzheimer's, in, in addition to the cholinesterase inhibitors, which are, which are addressing the acetylcholine deficit that we know is, is present in Alzheimer's, we also use NMDA receptor antagonists. Uh, so memantine is the one that we use. And uh, this has a more complex mechanism of action. Uh, but basically what happens is that it uh, ultimately helps to prevent some of the calcium influx that, uh, that happens in neurotoxicity and uh, therefore can uh, have a protective um, effect on, on uh, neuronal structures. All of these treatments may uh, delay progression of cognitive symptoms in these neurodegenerative uh, syndromes, but are not disease modifying. Would that be fair to say? Yes, that's correct. Well, let's go through frontotemporal lobar degeneration. And, and I, I must say, this is something that I find personally difficult to sort out clinically. And I would love to hear your approach to the variance, to the ways in which frontotemporal lobar degeneration syndromes may present and, and how we can organize our thoughts around that. It's uh, helpful to use the term frontotemporal lobar degeneration as the umbrella term. And this is just simply describing the fact that uh, you're seeing pathology either in the prefrontal cortex or in the usually the anterior portion of the temporal lobes. Okay, so it's really just saying it's, you have either a, a frontal lobe pathology and or a temporal lobe pathology. And so then you can break that down into uh, number one, frontotemporal dementia, the behavioral variant which is mainly going to be affecting the prefrontal cortex. And the second branch point would be primary progressive aphasia. In the primary progressive aphasias, the uh, pathology will collect more in the, in the perisylvian areas. So that, you know, if you think of the sylvian fissure separating the frontal and the temporal lobes, the areas surrounding that in the temporal or near Broca's area of the frontal lobe will be affected by the uh, either tau, or TDP43 pathology. To, to sort of reiterate, you're going to have either tau or TDP pathology affecting the neurons in the prefrontal cortex, or more preferentially in the temporal lobes or perisylvian region. And depending on where that pathology collects, that will uh, determine the phenotype of the disease. So can you uh, walk us through some of the more detailed features of each of those variants? So, and again, to summarize, you're saying the, the umbrella term is the frontotemporal lobar degeneration. Uh, and clinically, that's first divided into either a behavioral variant or a primary progressive aphasia variant, depending on whether it's accumulation of pathological dysfunction in the prefrontal cortex or in the perisylvian regions. Uh, and then if it's a primary progressive aphasia, that can be divided even further into two variants, which are semantic dementia or progressive non-fluent aphasia. I would love to hear you talk through just some of the details of each of those clinical variants. Right. So for the behavioral variants, uh, remember that, as we said before, we would not expect there to be any memory dysfunction in these individuals when they first develop the disease. Uh, it's primarily a disease which affects behavior and personality. So we can see um, some variations in the types of behaviors that they exhibit. And this is usually reflective of the portion of the frontal lobe that is affected the most. So they often will develop behavioral disin disinhibition. And this would be reflective of pathology affecting the orbitofrontal cortex. They often would have 
apathy or abulia, lack of motivation, which seems almost the opposite of the behavioral disinhibition we just mentioned, uh, but the medial portion of the prefrontal cortex would be affected in that case. And so sometimes you may have an elements of both. At, at one moment, they may be disinhibited walking around uh, without clothes on, for example, or saying something that's inappropriate, a lack of filter. Uh, whereas at other times, they're sitting in a chair, staring at the space and, and uh, sometimes not even responding too much to, to somebody talking to them. And you may see that both of those things in one individual. I'm able uh, to remember the distinctions between the functions of the orbitofrontal and mesial frontal cortex using a couple of... Uh, a couple of clues or, or memory cues for me. Uh, for orbitofrontal dysfunction, I always think of the famous Phineas Gage. Uh, so this was a person who uh, uh, had an injury where a railway spike uh, was projected through his orbit into his orbitofrontal cortex. And of course, the classical story is that he became uh, disinhibited, uh, inappropriate, uh, possibly violent. And, and uh, that's always been the way I've been able to remember that orbitofrontal dysfunction gives you, as you've described, behavioral disinhibition. And then in terms of the mesial frontal, I always think of that as the area of the frontal cortex that is vertically oriented. And so for me, I, I've just always remembered that it gives us our get up and go. Uh, it's the vertically oriented uh, region of the cortex and it gives us our get up and go. And on the other side of things, actually, as an epileptologist in uh, mesial frontal epilepsy, that's sort of your classic epilepsy syndrome for hyper uh, motor seizures. And so basically the exact opposite of what you see with dysfunction of the orbital frontal cortex. Mm. Interesting. So just a couple of memory cues for me. Why don't we uh, move on to the two variants of primary progressive aphasia? And I guess those are semantic dementia and progressive non-fluent aphasia. So for the uh, uh, semantic variant of, of primary progressive aphasia, the pathology is largely in the uh, anterior and inferior portion of the temporal lobe. And it's also important that I mention now that when we're talking about these, pro these progressive aphasia syndromes, the, you know, as we know, the, uh, the dominant hemisphere for language is almost always the left. Certainly, people can have the same pathology develop in the right temporal lobe, and they would have a different set of symptoms there. They, they often have uh, problems with more nonverbal aspects of language, or they may have other behavioral uh, problems. Sometimes they even have difficulty with navigation skills um, being from the right hemisphere. It's just that the uh, individuals who develop a very prominent language problem, that is a much more obvious type of problem that will be noticed by the patient and the family or their primary care provider. Uh, and so we much more frequently ultimately would see people who develop the pathology in the left side of the brain. But we should realize that this happens, you know, we, we believe that this would happen equally, either on the right side or the left side. And it's always fascinating to me to think, well, why? Why would it collect only on one side versus the other? And we, act, we really don't know the answer to that question. Similarly, why would it collect in the prefrontal cortex in some individuals, whereas it would be in the more of the left temporal lobe or the right temporal lobe in others? So I always find that just very interesting. And I don't really think we have a great answer to that. So uh, to get back to specifically this uh, semantic variant, semant uh, the semantics of language is dealing with the meanings of things. And so 
uh, people with this variant will have difficulty with uh, understanding the meanings of words. So especially, you know, nouns, uh, things, they just don't know what that, what that means, what that is when you say it. Okay. Uh, so they have difficulty with naming, confrontation naming, and this we can uh, tease out on neuropsychological testing or in, uh, you know, basic bedside testing as well. Uh, the main problem is they have impairment of just a single word comprehension and object knowledge. So that's what that that's uh, why it's called semantic impairments. Okay. And another thing that we can look for is uh, they have something called surface dyslexia. And uh, this is fairly easy to test if we if we give them words to read back uh, that have a difficult phonetic kind of spelling. So for example, the word yacht, Y-A-C-H-T is often used. Um, they, will, uh, they will read this as being yacht, or the word colonel, uh, C-O-L-O-N-E-L. Uh, they'll say colonel, okay? Uh, so they have uh, surface dyslexia that is part of this syndrome. Uh, so again, the, the pathology would be anterior, inferior portion of the left temporal lobe. And uh, tell us about progressive non-fluent aphasia and how that differs from semantic dementia. So it's the, uh, the, the pathology in terms of uh, tau or TDP43, same type of pathology, but it's, it would collect in a different region of the perisylvian you know, uh, area. This would be more in the portion of the frontal lobe near the sylvian fissure. It's actually near Broca's area. And uh, in this variant, you would see that the individual would have problems with uh, grammar, and their speech would be very effortful and halting. So you would see a lot of phonemic errors, um, especially in more complicated words with multiple syllables or words with a lot of consonants in it. They just have difficulty with the pronunciation. They have difficulty with the grammar and syntax, the ordering of a sentence. Um, and they also would have difficulty with comp the comprehension aspect of uh, if they hear a syntactically complex sentence. So for example, if, they're trying, if you uh, ask them the question uh, or if you read a sentence such as, uh, the lion was killed by the tiger, uh, they might have difficulty understanding, understanding the ordering of that sentence. And uh, they may not know then which, which animal would be dead. Uh, so so they, they have difficulty with the production of speech but they also have difficulty with the comprehension of complex sentences because of, their, uh, because of the grammatical aspect of it. Just to summarize, the uh, semantic dementia is a little more anterior uh, in terms of the uh, lateral temporal uh, uh, localization. The progressive non-fluent aphasia is a little bit more posterior and, and, and the distinctions really relate to that. I would expect that there probably are crossover or overlap syndromes, and that eventually uh, you might see features of all three of these disorders with the frontotemporal lobar degeneration syndromes uh, as they progress. Yes, that's true. And it's especially the behavioral aspects of uh, like a behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia. You will eventually see those occurring in, in, uh, in the primary progressive aphasias. I, I did want to mention one other, other thing about uh, primary progressive aphasia. They usually will categorize that as having three branch points. We just spoke about the two, the um, uh, semantic variant and the progressive non-fluent variant. The third one that will be listed, uh, which is a form of progressive aphasia, would be the logopenic variant. Uh, but the reason why I didn't group it into what we were just discussing is that the logopenic variant is usually 
um, a problem of the more posterior structures that are near the uh, closer to the parietal uh, uh, posterior temporal region. This is a pathology of al um, Alzheimer's. Uh, so that third variant is more of an Alzheimer's variant of, a, of an aphasia. And uh, tell us a little bit about treatment approaches with uh, frontal temporal dementia. Just in my um, you know clinical experience, unfortunately, uh, really treatment for these these individuals is very difficult. Uh, we will sometimes try SSRIs. Um, there, there's thought to be perhaps somewhat of a serotonin deficit in the, that affects the frontal lobes, and sometimes this can be helpful in mitigating some of the, the, some of the behaviors that we see. Uh, but um, the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors, unfortunately, have not really been found to be helpful in, in FTD. We may sometimes consider trying a, a stimulant if they have more of an apathetic subtype. Um, but um, I have found that even in these cases, it, when we try these uh, types of medications, it's still quite challenging. Um, we may try mood stabilizers also uh, for those who have a disinhibited behavior. Uh, but again, um, unfortunately, this is a very difficult disease to treat. And, and I guess there's some evidence to suggest that uh, cholinesterase inhibitors may actually worsen things, uh, that they could potentially exacerbate some of these psychiatric symptoms. Yes, I, I've, I've seen that on occasion. Um, I've seen some, some people, even if, they have, uh, even if the medication is being used for, for Alzheimer's or Lewy body dementia, um, unfortunately, sometimes I've seen people develop some vivid dreams. And uh, uh, so perhaps that, that plays into some of the uh, some of the uh, problems that we saw when we tried this with frontotemporal dementia. Well, I think that was a great review of the uh, clinical features of each of the four main dementia syndromes, the pathological features, the diagnostic approach, and treatment when available. And I, I think it's a, a quite a useful overall summary, uh, emphasizing some of the points. And, and again, just to summarize, our, our big four are Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia or diffuse Lewy body dementia, and then the frontotemporal lobar degeneration syndromes, uh, which are further subcategorized into two main categories, which are the uh, frontotemporal uh, behavior uh, variant and then the primary progressive aphasia. And uh, the primary progressive aphasia is divided into two tauopathies, the semantic dementia and the progressive non-fluent aphasia. And then uh, you said there is also a, a disorder which has more that has more Alzheimer's uh, uh, pathology, and that is the uh, what, what did you call that one again? Uh, that's the logopenic variant, and this is just simply um, very severe word finding difficulty to the point that it causes a halting speech. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a, a great overview. I'm sure our residents will have you back to do uh, more of these, but uh, uh, this was this was wonderful, and uh, thanks again for for doing it, Darren. Great. Thanks, Jeremy.